0: You uh, like that one? Yeah. I mean, come I, I on, have know known it was, was coming. That was great. Come on now.
1: couple points leading up to this, we've talked about how, you know, Rockabilly really had an influence on all of the uh, rock and roll things coming forward, but honestly, tonight, we get to experience somebody that not only took a lot of those Rockabilly backgrounds, but really started to make something new of it, and uh, though his time the things that he was doing was very revolutionary if you were to hear them now you would be like no that sounds exactly like this. CCR yeah, CCR or this other band or whatever a hundred other bands that might be influenced uh, by him." and uh, you know it's we're talking about Dale Hawkins tonight, and that's not a name you wouldn't even know, right? Right,
0: and he was invent—he was basically the inventor of what would be coined as Swamp Rock eventually. Yeah,
1: exactly. And so, you know, I'll say Dale Hawkins again. You won't know the name, but I'll say another name, and I bet you know that. Susie Q. Ring a bell? Well, this is this mofo. Let's,
0: uh... Let's, let's... You had to bring out mofo, huh? Mofo. <laughs> <laughs> or, what are we in, 1998? <laughs> Or
1: 2008, one of the others. <laughs>
0: uh,
1: yeah, but either way, honestly, I have a lot of respect for this guy. I like his music a lot. But the influences that he had on other bands and the influences that he took from historical aspects are both things that I really like personally in music. So, oh, yeah. So well, his, his genre, like, his centrality really, uh, I don't know, it influences me a lot.
0: Just his overall, like influence on the sound of the 60s if you listen to like some of his early 50s stuff is really evident yeah because he was like he played dark heavy music that would be kind of like you know be coined when they had better distortion and stuff like that yeah,
1: album to album, he sounds different too. Some of the albums he sounds like a like a dark Buddy Holly, and then the next album, like we said, it, it's straight up swamp rock. It sounds like a CCR like album, and then yeah. a few albums later, you know, you you know, he's sounding like a like a '70s kind of uh, I don't know. I don't, it's it's hard to even explain. He's got such a a really nice arc. I guess the best way to explain it would be starting with the day he was born, huh, Ian?
0: I guess I should.
1: You like that smooth transition there? That was like... That was
0: a great segue. (laughs) So, Delmar Allen Dale Hawkins was born on his grandfather's cotton farm in Goldmine, Louisiana, a small agricultural community near Magum in the Delta region of northeast Louisiana. Now, there are some reported different birthdays, but we've talked about this before, how... Promoters in the 50s, you know, would alter birth dates to make them look younger and stuff. Yeah. So most likely he was born October 22nd, 1938.
1: Well, that brings forward a pretty solid point. Like that might, that might be why everyone has such conflicting birthdays in that era. Maybe they were, like, changing people's birthdays around to make them fit genres and stuff.
0: The promoters really wanted them to seem younger than they actually were to, you know, to to appeal to, to the, the teenage crowd.
1: Yeah, you want to get to the young kids. That's actually kind of a theme now that I think about it. A lot of these early 50s, like, successful rock and roll people are all kind of people who look youth-ish, like, childish kind of. Because if you think, like, Buddy Holly, even when he's older, he still kind of looks like he could blend in with a high school crowd.
0: Older. We lasted longer than he did. <laughs> <sighs> I'm, I'm not.
1: <laughs> but you know what I mean. I <laughs> Look at Dale Hawkins. Even when he's into his, you know, 30s, like, he looks like he could, you know, still blend with the early 20s.
0: Now, his father, Delmar Skipper Hawkins, Skipper was his nickname. Hell yeah. Played music professionally during the 1930s and 40s and was briefly a member of the country band Sons of the Pioneers. I've never heard of that. Me neither. Generic country stuff from that era. Yeah,
1: Sons of the Pioneers. Yeehaw.
0: While his mother, Estelle Taylor Hawkins, she was a school teacher. Tragically, his parents would split up and then his father would die in a fire when... Dale was three years old. Oh, my sweet
1: God. Uh, so I see we're starting this off really, uh, really solid here. huh? On, on, a,
0: on a good note. On a, on a good note. And so for the rest of his childhood, he'd be passed along to a variety of sharecropping relatives, but he would mainly be raised by his grandparents. And to quote Dale Hawkins about his youth, he said, heck, man, I picked up cotton until I was 13, 14 years old. Coming up from school, you get a biscuit, stick your finger in it, pour some syrup in, and head for the field. That's how it was. <laughs> <laughs>
1: stick your finger in it, pour some syrup in. Hell yeah. That's how
0: it was. That's
1: how it was. That sounds actually kind of good. I wonder if he means like a like a fluffy
0: biscuit. Like you, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> nobody saw that but pat pat pretended to poke his finger into an, an invisible biscuit yeah it was, it was a it was a hypothetical biscuit thank you Ian. <laughs> and so like we've talked before people who grew up on farms they would end up absorbing absorbing like a wide range of musical influences you know including country rhythm and blues that he would hear on the Shreveport radio station where he essentially grew up for the most part.
1: Oh, good old Shreveport again. We yep. That That town's been mentioned a few times on our podcast.
0: And, you know, he'd also hear blues from black sharecroppers whom he would pick cotton with on his grandpa's farm. Yep. And he would go to black gospel singers in local churches. He would also name his early influences like Hank Williams, Hank Snow, Lonnie Johnson... And Sister Rosetta Tharp.
1: Oh, yeah, some of our favorites. And once again, another great musician having reference to Sister Rosetta Tharp, but yet no popular remembrance.
0: And I got another quote from Dale Hawkins about his youth. He said, I don't think I would have the background of hearing all types of music that I heard if it weren't for my grandfather. He was a sheriff of some of the parishes over there in Louisiana, and I got to go with him sometimes on Saturday night. <laughs> and i had to look this up because the way he used the word parish kind of confused me and i thought he was talking about he was a sheriff of churches but back when louisiana was first admitted into the union the first official state map used the term parishes to donate local government units
1: oh so like your your local county was a parish yeah
0: oh, okay that makes more sense so I I figured I'd throw that in to clarify because it confused me for a little bit. Yeah, it's the
1: it's not a religious use of the term. It's the uh, the other ter- use of it apparently, which I've never really heard. Wonder if that's widely used or if it's something that they just use temporarily or for a short term.
0: I think it's a kind of a French thing the way they use it. So. Uh-huh. <laughs> And so, like I mentioned in the quote, you know, he would have forays with his grandfather, you know, out to like the different clubs and whatever. And, you know, he, he at these clubs, he'd hear like country music and you know, blues, sometimes in the same place. To get another quote from his youth, he'd say, you'd get to hear Elmore James in the back and Hank Williams in the front. And, <laughs> all, <laughs> and also we'd go to church. They had a Pentecostal church just down the street. And I'd love to hear him play and sing. I got to go up and sing with him sometimes. Hell
1: yeah, that's cool.
0: And so by the age of 13, he would end up buying his first guitar that he earned selling Grit newspapers. (laughs) He got, so like a paper route pretty much. Yeah, so Grit is a magazine, but it was also formerly a weekly newspaper. And it was popular in the rural U.S. during, you know, like 30s and 40s and stuff.
1: I assume it's like a different type of paper or something. That's why it's called Grit.
0: It seems like it would be dirty and grimy, but the subtitle for the newspaper was America's Greatest Family Newspaper, and it was targeted to small and rural families. And in the 1930s, it was really targeted to small towns and rural families. And it would have 14 pages plus, like, a fiction supplement with it. And in 1932, it had a circulation of 425,000 in the lower 48. And 83% of its circulation was in towns fewer than 10,000 inhabitants.
1: Oh, so it was kind of like a way to keep up with maybe modern events, but also have like modern like cultural aspects all stuffed into one.
0: Well, and I was thinking about this and maybe it was called grit because they were, you know, focusing all those small towns and like farming communities and stuff like that. And that's a hard life. you got to have some grit. Oh, yeah, maybe. 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 Uh, That that does make sense. I'm just guessing there, but... Yeah. (laughs) That part we didn't look into. Sorry. Well, I didn't want to do the rest of this episode about Grit Magazine, so... Yeah. Dude, check out this Grit Magazine. And so, at the age of 14, he would end up lying about his age and joining the Navy. He would serve in the Navy for a year and a half on a ship in Korea.
1: Oh, shit. Yeah. Hell, yeah.
0: So, I... It doesn't seem like you saw a whole ton of action, but, you know, he lied about his age to get in. I mean, that's something.
1: So, no Woody Guthrie things where he got shot at a bunch of times or anything like that?
0: Not that I could find. Uh, I did look. Uh, I did sucks. look. But it doesn't seem like you really saw a whole lot of action. Mm-hmm. Well, not that it sucks that he didn't get shot at. <laughs> yeah. I, I guess I should. Re- it sucks re- you had a good time during war. Yeah, it sucks that nobody <laughs> shot at you so I could talk about it later for entertainment. <laughs> I mean, that would that would be a sweet little story. That's why... I, Tried to dig pretty hard yep. on it, but there was nothing. Sometimes you just can't force it. A lot of times when we're looking into these
1: artists, we'll be like, oh, well, they it's service, so we'll really look into that. Maybe we'll find something cool, and just sometimes you get nada.
0: Sometimes you just serve for a little while, and that's it. Yep. And it seemed like back in this day, you know, you didn't have to serve that long. How many guys we mentioned that it, they served for like a year and a half, two years? Yeah, know? it
1: seems like the four-year minimum kind of comes up later.
0: Yeah, I would imagine it was something like that, and it... Maybe during wartime they'd be like, "Well, you only have to spend a year and a half if you if you join."
1: Yeah, or yeah, like Korea if you're drafted or whatnot. Maybe you get you're not forced to stay for four years or whatever it might be.
0: Yeah, I'm not really sure what the situation is on that, but it just it just seems odd because it seems to keep coming up. Yeah. And so upon his military discharge, he would move to Bossier City and attend college and start working part time at Stan's record shop in the neighboring city of Shreveport. And there he would display a remarkable ability to identify songs after hearing customers sing a line or two. <laughs> so like customers would come in like uh I want the album for I want the recording for this one song and it goes like this and oh yeah 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 I yeah. know what it is. <laughs> yeah exactly. And so, you know, being the fact that he seems to be quite into music, he was determined to try his hand in the music business. He formed a band to play at high school and teen dances. Eventually, they would move on to clubs on the so-called Bazier Strip, a nightlife area that catered to off-duty military personnel from nearby Barksdale Air Force Base.
1: Huh, so it's like a little, little popular strip, but it's specifically tailored for the base?
0: Yeah, that's what it seems like. I mean, because there was a base right there, and, you know, a bunch of young guys you know, yeah. just trying to cut loose from, you know, being told what to do for a little while.
1: Yeah, I'm sure there is uh, there is some sort of industry for entertainment around all bases and that kind of fashion.
0: And so eventually, Dale decided he was ready to record. And inspired by his friend Bobby Charles' hit on Chess Records, See You Later, Alligator, he would end up recording a demo as kind of an answer to the song, in a way. And it was called See You Soon, Baboon. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, he was really kind of hoping to catch the interest of Chess Records. And he ended up booking some studio time or some after-hour studio time with local radio station KWKH's engineer, Bob Sullivan, in the station studio that was off the air during the middle of the night. Oh,
1: just like a, like for a test recording or a proof recording?
0: recording. Just demo just to get yeah. something down. Mm-hmm. And the owner of Stan's record shop, Stan Lewis, would actually pitch the demo to Chess. And Chess would end up releasing it in, 19, in June of 1956. Oh, yeah. For his first single. And it was See You Soon, Baboon with four-letter word on the back. Can you guess what that four-letter word is? What? Rock. Rock. When I first saw that, I thought for sure it was love. <laughs> <laughs> and so this brings me to my first dude. Check out the song. Oh, yeah. Whoa. And it's see you soon, baboon, and four-letter word. Because honestly, even They're though it's tracks. yeah, th- even though it's a lot cleaner than like what he would end up becoming known for, still great songs. Yeah, and it I really shows where he gets
1: it, like gets started at, which you know only gives more clarity or you know more credence to the actual journey that he goes on.
0: And so around this time, he would also end up cutting a rough demo of some song called Suzy Q. Yeah, I mean, nobody really knows that song today, though, so you it, there's no point in mentioning it. And it would be produced by future country star Merle Kilgore. I've never heard of him, but apparently he's a country star.
1: Country star Merle Kilgore.
0: Yeah, I, I know Merle Haggard. Yeah, that's I was like. Is that, <laughs> that Merle's
1: other name? I wasn't aware he had a different name.
0: <laughs> but they would end up actually re-recording this later to give it a cleaner sound, you know, just not demo sounding, you know? Yeah, yeah. Well, you
1: got to do that sometimes, man.
0: And despite the uniqueness and the power of this song and Dale Hawkins, you know, growing popularity, Leonard Chess, the owner of Chess Records, decided to sit on it and was unsure if they would even ever release it. What the fuck? Of course. And it famously took the intervention of Jerry Wexler to get the recording released and legit has it that after hearing the song, Wexler called Hawkins and told him, you call Leonard and tell him, I said you either shit or get off the fucking pot. (laughs) 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 And when shocked, Hawkins asked him if he should actually say it that way. And Wexler added, if he gives you any shit, call me back. And three days later, the record was released. I wonder if he actually <laughs> called him and said... <laughs> I really hope he did. <laughs> I
1: really, like, hope it's more like, hey, uh, he said that I should tell you shit or get off the, the fu- pot. The fucking oh, pot. Oh, the fucking, yeah. He's, like, looking at, a, like, a napkin where <laughs> yes, he's written he had, he had to write it down. Yeah, he's like, shit or get <laughs> off the fucking pot.
0: And... I'm going to call him back if you give me any shit. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If you
1: if you give me any shit, I have to call him.
0: <laughs> Whether that actually happened or not, the legend is a legend, and that's a great fucking legend. Yeah, that's
1: amazing. That That's pretty fantastic. And that was the album with Suzy Q on it, so, you know. That's, yeah.
0: It's, it's only a slightly influential song. And so the record was released on April 1957 on Chess and it would be one of the first singles Chess ever released by a white artist. And it would eventually reach number 27 on the Billboard charts and number 7 on the R&B charts. Oh, shit. It would be one of the first rock and roll songs to feature lead guitar instead of saxophone. And if you haven't listened to the song, the song combines like the regular 1950s rock and roll sound with a heavier blues feel that would, you know, influence a ton of bands in the 60s. Oh, yeah, a whole bunch. And not just 60s, but 70s, too, really.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. Like, we are talking about CCR. While they are
0: pretty prevalent in the 60s, like, it's... Their fame kind of yeah. came off the back of this song. Yeah, exactly, so... And so the title of the song? Dancers in the 1930s did the Jitterbug, Lindy Hop, and the Susie Q. Oh, yeah. And so he named the main character of the song after this dance.
1: Oh, that's cool.
0: And further proof of this, there are several R&B hits in in this era that mention the dance, including Be My Guest by Fats Domino, Willie and the Hand Jive by Johnny Otis. I don't know what that song's implying because I didn't listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) It's a dance, Ian. (laughs) The Walk by Jimmy McCracklin. And, yes, it's Cracklin. And here's a little fun thing for you. The song's melody actually came from a 1954 song by The Clovers. Oh, shit. I've got my eyes on you. And you can actually hear the similarity. Like, I listened to it, and it's like, oh, okay, I get the inspiration behind it. Yeah, but it's
1: way different. Yeah, because,
0: you know, it's got, like, what is heavily distorted guitar for back then. Yeah. (laughs) And the distinctive guitar part... Like, the main riff of the whole thing was played by 15-year-old James Burton, who would end up becoming a guitar legend who would soon play with Ricky Nelson for many years and with Elvis Presley. Wow, that's fucking awesome. At 15 years old, nonetheless. At 15 years old, he wrote probably one of the most recognizable rock and roll songs. Yeah. Or helped write, I guess. Yeah,
1: exactly. He's a part of the process.
0: That's Either way, that's fucking amazing. And years later led zeppelin's guitarist jimmy page would actually say that susie q was the riff that made him want to play rock and roll <laughs> that's fucking awesome yeah how crazy is that so you hear this he hears this song as a kid and goes i need to play guitar yeah, the? Yeah. like and in
1: in uh, legend is born right there well cuz if you think about like the susie q guitar part is so iconic
0: you know the oh yeah and we were talking about this in pre-production but with the ccr version it's the same riff, but they play it an octave higher.
1: Yeah, exactly. Uh, when the when you listen to the Dale Hawkins version, if you listen to, like, compare it to the CCR version, there is, while it's almost identical, they are play, played in different positions. Yeah,
0: and it drives a lot heavier, I think. Oh, yeah.
1: Uh, I mean, call me biased, but I think the Dale Hawkins version rocks way more.
0: Well, and so that's my next do-check-out-this-song is Suzy Q, because yeah. we can't talk about Dale Hawkins Without talking about Suzy Q. And honestly, if you haven't heard this version,
1: you got to listen to it. Yeah, if you've only heard the, C- the CCR version, you need to uh, refine your understanding and at least expand your borders a little bit by listening to this
0: version. And though he was the true author of the song, the record itself would be credited to him, Stan Lewis, and Eleanor Broadwater, a wife of disc jockey Gene Nobles of National Radio Station WLAC, most likely as a thank you for radio airplay. Oh, that's cool. And when Dale was asked about the origin of Suzy Q, he said I wrote it, but never actually wrote it. It just kinda worked itself out. Oh yeah. Like, <laughs> it was kind of a group effort like, Well I it seemed like it was kind of, the lyrics anyway was kind of a stream of conscious thing. You know when you just get in the groove and something comes out of that? Oh yeah. And there's no real explanation of where that came from. It just sometimes those things seem to magically appear in your brain. Yeah,
1: I mean, you, you just groove on it. You just groove on it.
0: So this song would be covered countless times. And we've already mentioned CCR, but the Everly Brothers would cover Rolling Stones, Crew Cuts, Lonnie Mac, Linda McCartney, just to name a few. It was also featured in the movie Apocalypse Now. And Hawkins claimed he didn't see any royalties from the song until 1985. (laughs) I'll get to a little bit more explanation about it later, but he had all these people cover one of the most famous rock and roll songs. Didn't see any fucking royalties for it. That's
1: so fucked up. Of course not, though.
0: Someone's always getting the shaft. And I mean, CCR released it in 1968 on their first LP, and it went to number 11 on the Billboard charts. So, I mean you'd think he'd get something yeah yeah
1: exactly especially like i don't know i'm sure multiple artists hit the the charts with that
0: and dale hawkins would end up featuring another guitar player roy buchanan on a few other hits of his like his version of my babe reached number seven in 1958 he had a song called la du dada a house a car a wedding ring class cutter yeah yeah and like my babe really rocks, and so does La do dada da, But these other songs kind of sounds like he was kind of forced to record like kind of a like poppy songs, like yeah. trying to make a mega hit. Yeah, out exactly.
1: Of it. Like try try and get in the uh, whatever the popular grooves at the time.
0: Yeah, well, and you know, fifty eight. So this is around the time when you know Buddy Holly was really busting it, Yeah, you know exactly. blowing up
1: romantic songs in the soft rock and roll were yeah. really popular,
0: and. and not to take anything away from buddy holly because he's, he's still amazing one of, he's one of my favorite artists and so that brings me to my next d check out this song my babe and "La Do Da Da." both these songs are pretty goddamn awesome yeah
1: they're great at least listening to them once so you know check out the spotify afterwards and you'll hear him
0: and so i mentioned two of his guitar players already both who would go on to have amazing careers and actually become like you know actually get some sort of recognition for it but Hawkins seemed to have kind of a way of finding badass musicians. Like, he'd find, like, guitarist Scotty Moore and drummer DJ Fontana, both who would end up playing with Elvis, and future country stars Floyd Kramer and Conway Twitty. Oh, shit. So, So, yeah, yeah, he he had a way of finding great musicians to play with him when he was recording. Yeah,
1: like, he almost could have had a a career as a talent scout or something.
0: Yeah, and, you know, uh, writing the success of Suzy Q... He'd do national tours and make appearances on Dick Clark's American Bandstand in 1957 and 1958. And Dill Hawkins was also one of the first white artists to play the legendary Apollo Theater.
1: Oh, shit. Yeah, how crazy is that? That's fucking awesome. One of the first. Yeah, that's it makes sense, though,
0: because, I don't know, his music fucking is just transcendent of genre in a lot of ways. And in 1960, he would even host his own teen dance party television program, called The Dale Hawkins Show on WCAU-TV in Philadelphia. Wow, I I did not know that. That's fucking amazing.
1: (laughs) We should have found some episodes of that or something.
0: And during this time, he would end up leaving chess and he'd cut a few singles for some smaller labels, Tilt and Zonk, and then he'd cut a couple for Atlantic. None were hits. But among these recordings, he would end up releasing a couple songs called Woman and a song called With a Feeling. Now, these songs I found on YouTube, they were bunched together in the recording, but both these songs are freaking awesome. And so this brings me to my next do Check out this song, Woman and With a Feeling. Because honestly, like, these songs were recorded in 1960, and it sounds like a mid-60s song. Like, this yeah this it's, is, it's years really ahead of its tran- time tra- uh, transcendent songs
1: yeah and the, the fact that they're both stuffed together the way they are yet they both are so unique and flow together the way they are i really i think it's interesting and it was worth listening to just the whole track as they were stuffed together i'm, I'm curious whether they're on the album on the same track or not
0: yeah they yeah. are oh, yeah. yeah and the other songs it just seems like it was more of the same trying to get a mega hit which is weird because it seems like, especially in this part of his career, he was always doing, like, a song to try and make a mega hit, and then it seemed like he was doing a song that he wanted to do, and those were the good songs.
1: Yeah, and the more popular ones, too. The ones that he really wanted to do are the ones that always really eventually caught on because other artists would make them popular, essentially, is what it sounds like.
0: Well, and he really did have a style that would be a precursor to an entire, like, musical revolution in the 60s, you know? Yeah. And so in 1962, Hawkins would end up getting married to Paulette Hale, and they would go on to have two sons. Number one? Number one. Hell yeah. Also in 1962, Hawkins moved into the, pro- into the production side of recording, and he went back to Shreveport to work for Stan Lewis's, the guy who owned the uh, record shop. Oh, yeah. Jewel and Paula record labels. That's awesome. And he undertook all aspects of the recording production process, including road work to promote the records. So he's
1: driving around promoing as well as doing all the, like, working the mics and running the board and stuff.
0: Yep. And during this time, he would work with Joe Sampley and the Uniques on songs like Not Too Long and all these things. But 19... but in 1966, he'd end up moving to Tyler, Texas to become president of ABNAK Records. He would end up producing big hits for The Five Americans, Western Union, as well as a hit for John Freddy and the Playboys, Judy in Disguise with Glasses. It almost sounds like Judy in the skin. Yeah, like Judy in Disguise with Glasses. I was yeah. like, That's confusing. Yeah. <laughs> And Bruce Channels, Mr. Bus Driver, and Keep On. While in Texas, he would also serve as Southwest Vice President of Columbia Records. Oh, wow. That's pretty cool. Which, in 1968, he'd end up moving to Los Angeles, California to become RCA's West Coast Head of A&R. Holy shit. So, for the next three years, he'd end up working with RCA, and he'd work with such artists as Harry Nilsson and Michael Nesmith. Now, if you don't know who Harry Nilsson is, you definitely heard his songs. He's got hit songs like Everybody's Talking. Everybody's talking <laughs> at me. I can't hear What you're saying. Yeah. And Coconut. Put the lime in the coconut. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Pretty much everybody knows that yeah. song. And then the song One. One is the loneliest number. One on.
1: is the loneliest
0: number. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And so... You know, I don't know if he was uh, produced any of these, but he ended up working with Harry Nilsson, which is... That's pretty cool. Yeah.
1: That's fucking awesome, actually.
0: And then Robert Neesmith, which I'm not sure if I'm getting his name right, but I'd never heard of him, and I was like, why are they even mentioning him? Well, he was best known as a member of the pop rock band The Monkees. Oh,
1: okay, yeah, just that little tiny band The Monkees. Yeah. Honestly though when I hear kneesmith it sounds like you know he's a he's a dwarf who's making knees at like a forge
0: <laughs> with a hammer. <laughs> well, I see you got your leg cut off in battle. Looks yep. like you need a new knee. Yep, come to the right Smith <laughs> And I don't know if that's actually how it's pronounced. It's just spelled N E S M I T H so Yeah, kneesmith or Nesmith. Nysmith and
1: Nysmuth. I don't know sure we could probably look it up but
0: you know what the monkeys get an easier fucking name robert (laughs)
1: neither of us have easy names to pronounce ian
0: (laughs) yes but we're not famous in 1969 he would end up releasing an album called la memphis and tyler texas
1: oh yeah with the best album cover ever yeah it's like a double exposure picture. One of him laying on his stomach and the, some <laughs> flowers, looking all like he's. It's like it's like a model picture. Like he's like looking super like quaint with yeah. his like hands and his legs. Behind and he's him not exactly
0: on. the most attractive guy either. That's yeah, what makes it, it the best. And it's
1: got like a guitar <laughs> in the background. And then there's like the second exposure over the top of him like standing yeah. at a crossroad against a sign. I was like, all right, well, you know, it's very seventies, but it is cool.
0: It's almost very seventies. Did yeah. come out in sixty nine. Yeah, it's very almost seventies. And even though this album was well received, it didn't really give him a big boost to his career. He didn't get any hits from it. It's not lost to history though. This album would get end up getting reissued on Rev Ola label in two thousand seven. Rev Ola? Yeah. And this would really only be his second full length as his earlier career was mainly like you know, singles. singles. Yeah.
1: Most of the stuff we actually list off so far was all on singles
0: or, you know. And this would also be heralded as a Swamp Rock masterpiece. Honestly, this album's pretty goddamn awesome. Hell yeah, it it really is. Some
1: of the instrumental pieces on it, like uh, which instrumental piece did we listen to? I can't remember the name. Oh, I'll get to that. Oh, excuse me.
0: And this album would actually feature some amazing musicians on it. It'd have James Burton, Ry Cooter, Wayne Jackson, Dan Penn, Spooter, Oldman, and Taj Mahal. Oh, yeah. Just to name of the few outstanding people who played on this album. This album would feature a reworking of the Jimmy Reed classic, Baby, What You Want Me To Do. Oh, shit. But really, like, the super swampy, groovy song, Backstreet. Yeah, yeah that, that, that that's the song on this album. Yeah, that was the one we listened to. That was fucking kick-ass. And this would kind of lay the groundwork for, you know, things he would later release. Like, because this was definitely a little bit different. You know, obviously, technology was better then. So, and, you know, him being in the recording industry, I imagine he saw a few tricks and stuff. And so yeah. he's able to experiment a little bit with with the sound. Mm-hmm. And so let's get to the next dude. Check out the song. What do you say? Oh, let's Please baby what you want me to do in backstreet and really oh, get, back, gasp yeah
1: backstreet it like so good and it's not the backstreet oh, boys song no it's not i thought it was a first two guys yeah, don't worry he,
0: he did make a, a little snipe when i told him to play that song yeah just a just a small one though backstreet is not back okay they are probably not even born yet <laughs>
1: <laughs> they're definitely not born yet i don't know maybe
0: 69 i don't think they're that much older than us no, are they? i doubt it i doubt it well and so in the early 1970s dale would get hooked on Benzedrine and move his family back to louisiana and he and paulette would end up getting divorced
1: oh Benzedrine.
0: yeah and if you guys don't know what that is it's an amphetamine
1: yeah it's it's it was like an over-the-counter uh, or amphetamine for a long time yeah yeah. I
0: think in the 60s, I wonder, yeah, yeah, yeah. maybe the 50s. I can't remember. Yeah,
1: exactly. I, well, I, <laughs> I mean, shit. I know that it's mentioned in songs that were made in the 90s, so.
0: Yeah, but that doesn't mean it was over the counter in the 90s. Yeah,
1: exactly. I'm not really sure when they actually made it illegal or whatever, so.
0: And basically throughout the 70s, he would just end up battling this chemical dependency He'd end up going to the Veterans Administration Hospital, and because of this, he'd end up moving to Arkansas in 1978. And, you know, just kind of lived a quiet life for a while, didn't do a whole lot, you know. But in 1985, MCA would end up buying the chess catalog, which I mentioned earlier, when he finally received a royalty check. Oh, shit. (laughs) $64,000. $64,000. <laughs> wow. That's some, <laughs> that's some back royalties that were owed right there. And so taking a page out of Sam Phillips' book. From, Sam, from Sun Records. From Sun Records, he would end up taking this money and building his own studio. Hell yeah. You know, he'd record people, nothing like super notable, but, you know, get by with it. and He made a living off of it. Yeah, I mean, it's Arkansas, so it's not like you need a ton of money, right? And honestly, now that I think about it, I don't think a whole lot of popular music came out of
1: Arkansas in that era. Like, the, you know, it's, you hear a lot of Tennessee and a lot of a lot of Kentucky and a lot of, uh, I don't know, a whole lot of Tennessee, actually. Now that I think about it. Yeah. It seems like every time we really talk, they're, so they're either from Louisiana or well, Tennessee. Well,
0: that was definitely around the time when Nashville really started bringing out some country hits. Yeah, too. that
1: makes a lot of sense.
0: And so during the 1990s and the 2000s, He'd kind of enjoy a resurgence in his career. He'd start playing festivals and stuff like that, as well as recording two very well-regarded albums. When what year was this? So, he would re- release an album called Wildcat Tamer in nineteen ninety nine, and that's that weird black and white, like almost negative photo with oh, that chick yeah. holding the sword that to is, that cat, that that tiger or I, whatever. I think it that's it a leash. Le- you think it's a leash? Oh, I thought it was a sword. A wildcat Tamer, man. Well, maybe. She tamed it with a sword. I don't know.
1: <laughs> but yeah, either what way. What do I
0: know about taming wildcats? Yeah, and it,
1: for 1999 and for being the guy who started playing music in the 50s, well, like what it is, it is quite an amazing album. And it's very progressive for...
0: Yeah. Well, and this album would have songs like self-titled Wildcat Tamer, Born in Louisiana, Summertime Down South. And Summertime Down South is actually kind of weird because it's, it's really country and kind of weird and different. And, like, because even Born in Louisiana still has that swamp rocky sound. Summertime Down South doesn't. It's kind of country. And this, and honestly, this is a really amazing album.
1: Yeah, and, and even more weird is the actual song Wildcat Tamer has, like, hints of grunge, I would say, in it. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, I but would... it's
0: it's a super rockabilly song yeah, with hints of grunge. It and is. You're, you're definitely right on that.
1: Because I wouldn't say that the, he actually took a lot of the style or anything from grunge, but I think the recording process and some of the music, like the instrumentation, like, uh, like what his pedal setups were and things yeah. like that, were very close to what they were doing during the grunge era.
0: Well, and to... Record an album like of this quality in your sixties—that's unheard of. Yeah, exactly, and and be fairly
1: hip about it. Not just fall back on your simple old laurels. Like this is was he, not.
0: It's like he did, but then he also didn't. Yeah, no, that's it, what's
1: crazy about this album. Because yeah, it's he somehow simultaneously kept his theme, but also kind of moved forward and was acceptable. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, like, made it, like, a modern album. It wasn't, a like, oldies re recording No,
0: but it was also, you could tell from the heart, you know. It wasn't, like, him trying to be hip or anything. It was just, you know, these are the songs I'm recording. Deal yeah, with exactly. it. Yeah, exactly. I, I really do enjoy that. And then in 2007, he would also release an album called Back Down to Louisiana, and that would include songs like New Generation, Bang Bang, Feeling Like a King, and because of time i wasn't able to play any of these songs some of these songs are pretty killer like this is also a pretty good album i don't think it's as good as wildcat tamer but there there's some killer songs on this yeah and so this brings me to my next dude check out this song wildcat tamer born in louisiana summertime down south new generation bang bang feeling like a king hell yeah honestly like these are like songs where they all kind of take from either what he started playing. But then he he tweaked it because, you know, he's old now yeah. and he actually evolved as a musician. Yep. Or they're just like completely different genres that influenced him when he was a kid. It's yeah. pretty amazing. No, it
1: it is it is really fucking worth listening to, honestly.
0: And I did mention that back down to Louisiana was released in two thousand seven. Well, in two thousand five he was diagnosed with colon cancer. And while undergoing treatment, he would still continue to perform, and he would end up recording that album.
1: Holy shit. Yeah. Which means he also toured on, with uh, Colon Cancer. Then, yeah. Huh? That is fucking insane.
0: And on June seventh, two 2008, he would end up meeting a couple of future podcasters named Pat and Ian.
1: Oh, they sound like assholes. They are assholes. And th- these two <laughs> gentlemen would sit on each side of this amazing old man and share well i don't think he actually was drinking but we, we were they we were, definitely were yeah we were hammered yeah, we were definitely drinking <laughs> we, and, uh, this was this was
0: our young like What'd we say? We were 23. Yep. So, I mean, this was our hard-drinking days yeah. right there.
1: And yeah, so so Ian Ian slid in there very softly. But, yeah, one of the reasons that we actually picked this man out is because me and Ian got to personally share. And I'm not saying, like... No,
0: that's it, not one of the reasons. That is the yeah, reason. But, uh, but And then we figured we're, we're going to be like, we're going to do an episode on him no matter what. Yeah. Because we never knew he released Suzy Q until he fucking told us. Yeah,
1: exactly. And... It's not one of those things like we met him, like he walked up and we were like, oh, hey, cool, super famous guy. Shake your hand. And then he's gone. Like, I'm pretty sure he sat with us for an hour, two, maybe three. Yeah, and like, we talked
0: about music the entire yeah, we, time.
1: We, and we had like legitimate music conversations. And he, and he like, kind
0: of just <laughs> slipped it in. Just like, oh, yeah, I'm the guy who wrote Suzy Q. Yeah, exactly. I still remember being, <laughs> being several sheets
1: to the wind. And he says that. and I'm just like, oh, oh, shit. <laughs> like, and he signed so much stuff for us like yeah. he signed multiple posters from the show and like i don't know it was it was in a very a very cool little local bar in our hometown and it's one of the coolest little bars in the whole world and it was just an amazing night i don't think i'll ever forget that whole night because it was just so cool
0: yeah it was a it was a good time man i don't know a, he I was, was a, hammered. He but was a fantastic
1: was, dude. He really was one of the nicest dudes, but still, like, I didn't even, like, we, he didn't tell us at the time, obviously, that he had colon cancer. He no, didn't share he, that during the conversation. No, but,
0: he, I think once you have something like that, it's one of those things where it's just like, well, I got to live with it and deal with it he, and not mentioning it because, you know, he's just living his life.
1: Yeah, exactly. So, you know, regardless of of the circumstances, I just feel very blessed to have even met the guy. And so the fact that, you know, 12 years later, we can pay a little more homage and, you know, share this story, just it makes it even better. So
0: Well, and just that random encounter that we had among the many crazy weird random encounters that we've had. Ended up leading us to find a bunch of killer music we never knew existed. Yeah.
1: I mean, honestly, like, if Ian and I could have a whole separate podcast that was just all the weird shit that we ran into in our youth and the weird situations we got into, but I honestly say that the Meeting Dale Hawkins was the most wholesome of all of them.
0: If we ever do that podcast that podcast is going to be called after school special. <laughs> Cause you know, that's, w- uh, oh, that's yeah. what all my buddies called us. Cause <laughs> you know, when we got together, they were like, they're like an after school special of what not to do. Oh, <laughs> <Yeah, exactly. laughs> well, those were the days. Yeah, I
1: know. I, we were not a good influences on each other or the people around us.
0: So <laughs> no, we definitely weren't, but we've grown, we've
1: matured, we've changed.
0: And so on February 13th, 2010 he'd end up succumbing to colon cancer and he died at the age of 73 in little rock arkansas god that that really does just make it even more special that's less than
1: two years later yeah so close to the end of the man's life and like i don't know i while it means a lot to me i hope that even that interaction meant something to him you know what i mean because like it, I think it was different. The reason that he sat with us for hours is because it wasn't like we treated him like a famous person. He sat and, like, was one of the boys. And I th- yeah. I feel like, you know, well, right, right before the end of the line like that, like
0: that just makes it even more wholesome. I'm, I'm tearing up a little bit just, just thinking about it. Well, and this was the time, too, when we were super into Rockabilly. And just the names of the people he he said and songs that he helped with. And it was just... It was a really awesome time, honestly.
1: Well, I, I remember him being surprised that the two of us had some fairly encyclopedic knowledge of of rockabilly and things. Because one thing's, you know, one in this era, Ian and I were in a two part or like a two piece folk punk ish gypsy thing weird thing we were in a band we were high and drunk a lot all right so either way in this era we were like a a two-piece band so we would you know wander the town and cause you know chaos and trouble but we also have always just loved music and musical information even even in our darkest you know most punk weird days we were still studying music theory and giving a shit about it you know what i mean so the fact we
0: could i think music at that time in our lives was probably the only thing we gave a shit about honestly oh, yeah, absolutely. and so we just tried to absorb as much as we could yeah and uh, you know that's that is
1: it is what it is and you know it i have regrets about the the way that it was but this is not one of those regrets you know that that night will forever be probably one of the uh, the finest of my whole existence
0: and so before we get to the last thoughts I mentioned before that his father played music professionally in the 1930s and 40s. Mm -hmm. Well, his brother Jerry and his cousin Ronnie Hawkins were also both rockabilly singers in the 1950s. Yeah. And Ronnie would end up going on to work with future members of the band, the group that provided the backing for Bob Dylan. God damn it. Bam! That's right. I got it in.
1: I, I <laughs> of course, after after this entire episode, Ian slides Bob Dylan under the <laughs> door like, oh, and by the way, Bob Dylan.
0: <laughs> it's just a little note that just uh, just says Bob <laughs> yep, Dylan just right says there. Bob Dylan, <laughs> underlined. And so let's get to my final dude. Check out this song because honestly, it's Bob Dylan. <laughs> it's a lot of Bob Dylan. <laughs> don't think twice it's all right <laughs> no, no, don't, don't even, just moving forward no i just think that we didn't talk enough about his music because he really does have some killer goddamn tunes yeah, he out he really there.
1: does so just whack some dude checks on us
0: yep and so you got the song tornado juanita teenage dolly and everglades hell yeah and actually Everglades popped up on a playlist for a
1: bunch of like weird music that I listened to. And I was super surprised to hear that it was considered like a a genre influence for, you know, kind of murder folk. So, well,
0: yeah, because it's kind of a murder ballad because he's such a nice guy. It seems like almost kind of weird for him to yeah, write a murder ballad. It's
1: definitely out of his uh out of his general wep- repertoire, as it were. But, you know, I. I, I really like to see that. You know, we obviously, me and Ian talk about all the time with everything we always talk about. But those those threads to influence, to influence, to influence are just so important. And you know,
0: oh yeah, I mean that's why we're doing
1: this. Yeah, and you have that one track that you do that influences a portion of us of another large genre. So you know, so many years later, that's fucking cool. That really is.
0: And so I think it's time we uh, get to our final thoughts here. Do it. My turn. You you. All right. The story we told of meeting him not being part of this, but being quite influential on us at the time. You know, actually looking into his history and what he did musically, like he discovered a ton of great guitar players that would go on to help the the genre of rock and roll. He would basically invent swamp rock, you know, which would bring up CCR. I know you're not a big fan of them, but But
1: they're still influential, regardless of my personal opinion.
0: And they've got a soft spot in my heart, honestly, Uh, somewhere deep down in there. Just to influence CCR, who influenced a million other bands that, you know, we've listened to different songs of them. You know, I mean, it's just like the amount of influence he did just in, in one song, really, in one song. Just the amount of influence and progress that came out of rock and roll is staggering to me. Yeah, no, it's fucking amazing. And then you get to his later career where he starts producing more music and working eventually with big time artists and great evolution of career. Yeah. And then even while he's doing that, he's still writing songs and and stuff like that. You know, I mean it's just it's amazing. Yeah, no, it really is. And so I guess in my real final thoughts is Honestly, this is the thread to dark, heavy music that we initially discovered with Link Ray. The bad,
1: bad boy music. Yeah.
0: I, I never realized how influential, even though we met him, we talked music with him. I never realized how influential he was. I don't think anyone we ever research, we never feel like they're as
1: influential as they really are until we start looking. You know what I mean? The more we actually dig into these people, the more we see the people that they touched and how that influences the world. And that's one of the greatest things about, I think, this podcast that we're doing here is connecting all of these things. You know, like these, these little threads of influence going in all directions. It's really cool.
0: Yeah, and... To even get into his 60s and 70s and stuff and still be extremely creative and write unique music in and of itself is particularly amazing to me because you got all those guys who became extremely famous and then they kind of rest on their laurels. He never did that. No, he
1: absolutely did not. He continued to evolve through his whole career, which I, I fucking love.
0: And that's what I got, man. What do you got? You know...
1: I'm getting to this point in our last thoughts where, you know, there's there's this thing I could do where I could kind of regurgitate, like, the the general consensus that I've felt about other artists. And I, I feel like that's just—that's not properly paying each artist the homage they deserve. So I guess the best I'm going to do with Dale Hawkins is something, like, more honest than it, it would be analytical. I know I'm typically— uh, you know stammeringly analytical uh in these typical uh last thoughts sort of things but i'm just gonna do this like the poster with dale hawkins signature is still burned into my mind neither of us have either of these posters anymore it was 12 years ago
0: nah we kind of lost it in yeah, our youth. It, i mean but but, it's but, still a memory that's there.
1: But yeah, this this white poster with with an with a young version of him embossed in Boston blue and the the red uh, border around it and the the date and the time and you know our, our local corner pub and that that big bold confident signature and it hung on your wall for years afterwards and I still remember uh, like one particular. Uh, time where you were at your uh, previous roommate's house, Penny and pops shout out to Penny and pops and Rufus and Rufus Uh, shout out to the trio. Uh, But we were, we were there and I remember sitting there staring at that poster and just being like, that is just such a genuinely lucky moment for us to be able to really have connected with a piece of rock and roll history
0: it was really kind of a drunken coincidence how it all unfolded anyway. Yeah, and, but, it, you
1: know, and we, we make jokes about us being, you know, hammered and all that. But the fact, like, I was not so intoxicated that I don't remember. I remember a very large amount of what we talked about. And I remember, I don't know, I remember appreciating it. But it seems like years later, I don't think I appreciated it even enough as to what it were or as to what it was. But years later, I don't think I even appreciated it enough for what it really was.
0: No, honestly, we didn't start appreciating, really understand the appreciation for it until we started planning this episode, I think.
1: Yeah, no, exactly. And so, you know, it was at the beginning, it was an anecdote in my mind that we yeah. had ran into him at one point, And by the time we had finished the research for this episode, I feel like, these moments where you have an interaction with somebody outside your genre or era or generation or whatever it is and influences are positively passed, that is the most important thing for the growth of not just music but art in general is these positive interactions generationally. We have so many situations where an older generation and younger generations find themselves in conflict because of, you know, obviously point of view education growth whatever it may be differences just
0: just growing up in a different era you know we had a we had so much more technology and way more distractions in our life you know like he had farming and music yeah exactly and and when when those gaps no matter
1: how large and uh, and ridiculous they are because if you think about it you me and him should not have had the common ground that we had if you subtracted music from the situation this was an elderly man you know who was fairly decently famous who you know was suffering from colon cancer and which we didn't know about which we which yeah which he was such a trooper about that we literally had no idea and uh you know the fact that he would spend hours with just, a, a you know, a pair of, you know, musicians in a strange little town. And regardless of how much that means to me or, or even could have meant to him, you know, I mean, when you're that old, sometimes even if you were touring like that, you might not be getting genuine attention like that.
0: Well, and now that you mention it, maybe he wasn't expecting people our age yeah, to no, exactly. even give a shit. You know, so maybe that meant something to him because he was able to part on some of the knowledge he gained over the years on things he probably knew we wouldn't know about.
1: Yeah, exactly. And so if nothing else, I really want just everybody out there. You know, we I try not in this show to target only musicians, but I feel like we end up talking a lot to musicians because this is so much about like this show itself is so much about musical inspiration that it it makes sense to kind of frame it in that way.
0: Well, and you know, I've always classified music as a journey. You know, when you start picking up an instrument, it's not just that you start learning songs and learning how to play, but you also start searching for more music. Well, you learn truly what you like. Like, before I
1: played music, I could listen to music that sucked and think that I liked it because I didn't really grasp it, but playing music Oh, come on, you still like White Zombie. No, I'm, I'm not. I, I, yeah, I actually still like Wade Zombie. I was more referring to like, you know, some of that early. Creed? <laughs> I, was, no, I never listened to that. And I'm, a oh, little, that I'm a little bit come too on old now, for that come one.
0: Come on now. Creed was... Creed had their biggest hit when we were in high school. Come on now. Yeah,
1: but I'm talking more like I was talking about like more like middle school. We're talking about like some bad R&B stuff or you know <laughs> some some other. Oh, things. you were a Boys to Men guy? huh? Oh well, of course I was a Boys to Men guy. I'm in that era, right central. You know what I mean? If uh, we're gonna continue moving forward, and I guarantee by the time we get to the '90s, guys, oh, we're doing Boys to Men just because because <laughs> <like, laughs> I think it'll be so fantastic. Ian has thoroughly uh, derailed me as usual, but let me just get to my final point, bridging generations. If you we've talked about this before. No matter what genre or no matter what genre you play, no matter what style you like, if you're only looking at the style and genre that you like, you're fucking up. The best part about liking a genre, especially a small weird genre, is that you can go steal little elements of other really cool other small genres and bring them across the border and suddenly your music becomes extremely unique and still fits fits within your like specialized corner no matter what it is if you're electronic music you can find inspiration in country if you like jazz you can find inspiration in blues if you like blues you can find inspiration in i don't know fucking Time. anything else yeah really. dinner, dinner time theater like it it doesn't <laughs> matter the it, so many people isolate their their influences these days and i feel like it it hurts the process itself because you guys only are inspired by people within their own genre and that's not the way it's supposed to be your genre is your isolated ecosystem of music you should take the strong things from other ecosystems and evolve that's what makes music beautiful. So if you're a, and you know, not even musician, artist. If you're an artist, go find your inspiration somewhere outside your comfort zone. Whatever it may be, if you want to paint a picture, go find a type of art that you've never really, you know, gotten into. If you want to play a song, find a genre you've never really gotten into, write a poem, you know, whatever it may be. Just expand your horizons, and that does not mean you have to get out of your chosen genre.
0: And I hope that we are helping you guys expand your horizons musically. Hell yeah. If you guys like what you hear, please like us on all the iTunes and stuff yeah, like that. like us on stuff. And give us a hell of amount of stars, like so many the stars. The maximum amount of stars. As
1: many stars as you can think of.
0: As many stars that the system allows. Please check out our Spotify. All the songs we've talked about are on there. I mean, if you really want to hear where all this inspiration came from, dude check out Dale Hawkins versus Suzy Q, which is on our Spotify. Big time. Check it all out. Uh, and, and
1: one big final shout out on our way out here for uh, my fine co-host... Happy birthday, Ian. Ah, damn it. You old bastard. I'm getting old. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to you. Happy birthday to Ian. I'm not singing the rest of the song.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Have a good night,
1: guys. I love y'all. Have a good evening.